0: Lava. This is Arshita Kun with Why Indigenous Words and Idea podcast and I have a special co-host today and I'll let you introduce yourself.
1: Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm Lana Lupesi. I am um, a writer and PhD candidate at AUT University. Um, I'm Samoan Pakia and I am proudly born and raised West Auckland. Right
0: on. <laughs> <laughs> to, to start us off, like... Man, there's so much we can talk about So I will put that out there That just take this episode as an introduction To a wide realm of possible routes you can take Especially because of where Lana's at in her work And because there's only so much we can ever cover in one of these anyway Um, But is there any, like, immediate current events or issues That you wanted to comment on before we get into, like, your work?
1: I've been thinking about how we are sort of in a time where multiple crises are crashing up amongst each other with this global pandemic and um, I think sort of finally getting to a place in my lifetime anyway where we can talk really openly about um, white supremacy uh, because of what's happening in the states at the moment. Climate crisis and then sort of how all of this is tied into capitalism. So I've been thinking, you know, I've been really trying to hold on to the reflections that I was having during our own lockdown, when the whole world kind of stood still. And I think one thing that I am really just trying to hold on to is how all of a sudden everything that was too hard was suddenly made possible. So schools um, were able to, you know, give devices to everyone, internet connections and in places that were unconnectable suddenly came up. Conferences which have never been able to be online yet people with different ability levels were never able to access them suddenly went online, teaching went online um, we kind of had a glimpse of a universal basic income through the um, wage subsidy and all these things that were just you know too hard all of a sudden were possible and I guess as you know we're really lucky here to be going back to somewhat of a normal um, Life and I'm loving being able to see people again and, and not have to eat my own cooking every day. Um, how do we hold on to the things, the change that's impossible? And um, yeah, just trying to not kind of fall into the trap of reverting back really quickly into this hyper-productive world because I think we saw who was and wasn't an essential, you know, who, who we really do need to keep working and to keep doing stuff in a time of crisis. And like, it's not us it's not the university yet so there was so much pressure placed on every academic to keep going and this really kind of crazy mentality um that it that this break in time these multiple crises overlapping gave people a chance to catch up on work like that seemed really um uncomfortable for me so i guess i'm trying to hold on to the slowness that came with that moment of reflection
0: yeah man i love that because for me It was like a moment of revelation, right? A revealing what was always possible. Yeah. But because of a lack of investment. And at this point in time, it happened because of this natural phenomena of a virus that forced the globe to slow down and reveal that really there's a choice, right? There's systems of power and societies that have made and constructed... The powers that be the systems that be and that there's a choice in not investing in the yeah. things that they were forced to invest in because that really is where the source of power is and like i love how you mentioned that like what really is essential
1: <laughs> i feel like it just revealed and exacerbated inequities that people like us already know exist because we live and feel that every day and the fact that the that people that don't ever have to really consider these things we're made to think about them we saw change happen and so it's kind of like I just don't buy into the idea that things are too hard anymore because we saw how quickly that could happen at every level and so how can we hold on to that within our own work as well
0: yeah during our level 4 here in Aotearoa was I guess I was critically hopeful of what could be mm. but I also was kind of realistically expecting the the desire to return to normal where I'm like normal was the problem <laughs> or there was problems in the normal. Right. Yeah. And so I like how you bring that up. And I think I'm hoping that that'll catch with more people and maybe that collective critical consciousness will hopefully grow to, yeah, like there's other worlds possible. Yeah. Um, and we got a taste of a direction that could be. Yeah and how do we, I guess, keep nurturing that as we're still in kind of this transition because we're in level one, right, here in Altero, which means we're mostly unrestricted in kind of mobility and movement within the country. Mm -hmm. But globally, right, we're still in the, the pandemic. And so I think there's still a possibility. I guess if we can hold on to that memory, Um, while we're kind of in our unique bubble in the world. So one of the things that I've asked Lana to to think about as well, to share, because it's something that we've, we've talked about a bit, is this idea that um, comes from uh, Moten and Harney on fugitive planning in the undercommons. And I guess a brief introduction to it is the, the most, I guess, popular uh, chapter from that book is the undercommons of the university. And different routes, different sites of learning that happen despite the res- the things that get in the way of learning. So there's so much to it, but one of the ways that we've thought about it to think about it is what are the conversations that are happening outside the classroom? What are the relationships that are happening across the space, um, despite the space? Uh, and how do we draw from this inspiration um, in the works that we do here in Tamaki Makoto? So, I guess, first, what are your thoughts on the undercommons and maybe some ideas of the things that you do in regards to that?
1: Yeah, I, I remember when I first read the undercommons and it was in that sweet spot where I was no longer an undergrad, but I hadn't started postgrad study yet either. Um, and so I, I enjoyed it, but it was kind of something that was getting quite popular within contemporary art at the time, which makes me always want to reject it a little bit. But I don't think I really understood it until I then started um, my PhD journey that I'm on now and I think it just offers such a helpful framework for us to talk about the spaces and relationships and friendships and networks and so on that really help us survive in this space and I remember I used to look at friends who were doing PhDs before I was doing one and being like I don't get why it's so hard or like Don't they just like come up with an idea and then write about it? And then, you know, when you're in here, it's such a specific pull on every part of your body. And when you have family responsibilities like we do, or um, things that you need to fulfill outside of this space, you feel really conscious of the way in which the university takes you out of those things, takes me away from being a mum, or a partner, or a friend. And so, I think. I was naturally forming these, what you could call undercommons, but at the time they were just lifelines. Like I remember seeing our friend, Rachel Cocker. Um, and cause for me, a lot of the undercommons spaces that I'm a part of are across universities, which I think my university would hate to hear, but it's like you see someone like you in a space at a conference and you just grab them as soon as you see them. Um, and so I think, yeah, those kind of spaces and conversations have been um almost like therapeutic in a way, but I think the only places where I've been able to grapple with the combination of theory and lived experience um throughout my university journey.
0: You know, like and so the undercommons, right, like is what's underneath, right? Like the underbelly. Um and you know, we're we're obviously critical of the the institution, yet we're in the space. Yeah. And and I think it's because we see this complicated relationship where the university like there's there's issues with bureaucracy, there's issues with the lack of open access, there's issues with how expensive it can be, with who can go, who has the ability to actually study in a healthy way, mm. which I don't know if any of us have <laughs> actually gone through this in a healthy way. Um <laughs> and uh and so there's all those issues yet at the same time it it is a gathering place even as a problematic gathering place which gathers um records uh knowledge but people that want to think about stuff and when we find those people it's interesting because that's what i value the most out of my university experiences those relationships with those people that I met through this really messy institution that has a lot of problems and so for me the undercommons was just like it spoke to me because I was like yeah, I'm here I'm in this space for a reason but there's also issues with this space and making those connections and so I wanted to throw out an idea see what you think about it because it's something I had a conversation with with another uh, colleague and friends of ours as well Inoke Hafoka and thinking about what does the commons look like though f- with an oceanic context or in the Moana? And so I was playing around with it and I was like, it's called the undercurrents. <laughs> <laughs> and so the same kind of idea, and of course, building off of the Faka Papa of, of Moten and Harney, um, but then looking at this context of what does it look like um, with the relational values in, in you know here, and uh, like you mentioned, like we have this cross university. So, AUT and University of Auckland are like a block is it a block, a couple blocks, yeah. I guess, um, apart from each other. And um, yet, we have this little lack of better or they have this set of relationships that exist across these different institutions and within them. And Sometimes, we get together and we fight kava, we talanoa, um, or we have the Vamoana space at AUT as well and we're kind of moving back and forth and for me like I guess that is I guess part of the the new genealogy of the undercommons of the undercurrents where we've incorporated these I guess oratory skills that are kind of unique and specific to the Moana, but related to other oratory skills as well I don't know what are your thoughts I mean
1: because I did my undergrad here at University of Auckland and then when I went into postgrad it wasn't about the university I went to or the faculty it was who I wanted to work with as a supervisor so like that relationship was um my only concern really I would have gone to any university I was even looking overseas and it was just when I found um Leali'i Albert Refiti and then I just kind of knew that he would could be the person to work with me on my on my project and so I went there but I think because I also feel a little bit of like um A right to be at the University of Auckland. I've always been really comfortable if there's something going on I'm just gonna go or um yeah if I hear there's like an event or whatever I'll go do writing groups for my friends in like the postgraduate strata lounge or anything like that um yeah that kind of there's no border there that I feel blocked that that I feel blocks me and so I feel in a way like as Pacific people who are really comfortable with like global mobility and moving in and out of spaces and and finding spaces for ourselves that happens too in this um undercurrent because we know that no one institution can give us everything we need um so yeah i see that happening a lot
0: like on that note right like um because what i want to build into right is your work and and for me like you mentioned like there are things here that obviously attracted us to here. The reason why we're doing what we're doing, um, yet it isn't enough, and so we we find these relationships, wherever they might be, and build what we what we want. We we try to make it work for us, and for me, having those conversations allowed me to do work that I don't think I could have done anywhere else or you know, uh, in any other kind of way because. Each relationship was opening up a different realm. Yeah. Right. It was expanding my world in, in in ways that pushed me, challenged me. But because they were based in relationships first, like it was, it opened up. I think a, I don't know how I would say this. Maybe like a sustainable pathway elsewhere. Yeah. And those relationships to me, I mean, through that, I mean, we have, you know, multi-ethnic, multi-gendered. Global yet locally um, grounded conversations, dialogues, debates that for me kind of, I didn't know how to, what to call it, but I think you you have a word (laughs) that when I heard it, I was like, oh, that's it. And so I'm wondering if this is maybe a segue or entryway that we can kind of talk a little bit, you know, a little introduction or a taste to what you're doing with, Uh, the idea of monocosmopolitanism
1: yeah um i i guess before i move on i just wanted to make one point you know i come from contemporary art background and i'm now in the university and i see those things as being very much mirror image systems Um, although university people love to criticize the contemporary art system and vice versa Um, but i think one thing in terms of the undercurrent and probably all my work, really, as I think about this idea of mining, I think about how we can be in these spaces and mine them for resources and access um, and infrastructure, because they are mining us too, because we are, um, we fill certain quota systems and whatever, and they get paid a certain amount of money when we get our PhDs. So how that can be kind of a mutually um, beneficial arrangement, because I can't change the system. Like, I just can't. It's not It's um My work to do, or do I have like nor do I have the emotional capacity um to try take down a very well established university system, so I think yeah finding that way to be within it but to make it work for you um I think is about the undercurrent, and for me it's about how I can use that money and that resource to like um make work with my friends like <laughs> write a paper or go to a conference or whatever but really it's about having these conversations and the relationships um are always more prioritized for us i mean it's that kind of thing where it's like i can give the university the outcome they want but that's not my end goal like my end goal is focusing on this um relationality and this network so that other people don't have to work as hard as maybe we did and you know also acknowledging that we benefit from the hard work of people who have already come through before us too. But this word that I am looking at, or I have kind of landed on, is um, this notion of the Moana cosmopolitan, or Moana cosmopolitanism. And um, it's become a central concept in my research, to name people who are rooted ancestrally to the Moana or the Pacific Ocean, but who are uh, globally mobile, whether that's through physical movement of our bodies or the way in which we're connected to global worlds online and the increased uh, flow of information and images that happens on social media. and um, I don't know, I have a, a bit of a complicated relationship with the term um, and I think that is just the practice of naming groups of people who have never really been grouped before and naming groups of people in the English language as well, or in one language. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I kind of use that as a, as a disclaimer and I always um, reference my friend and curator, Joanna Gordon-Smith, uh, with her phrase, Terms of Convenience. And how these are just terms of convenience, I think, for us to kind of get work uh, happening and, and going. But I think the reason why I'm using this idea of the Moana Cosmopolitan is because when I came into uni, um, I tried out lots of things. Um, I tried out diaspora and transnational and transindigenous and indigenous and um, all of the other terms that already exist and have, you know, amazing literary histories behind them. But I think none of them quite felt right to me. Um, I was really interested in this generation who are digital natives, so kind of have this uh, slightly different relationship to technology and to, you know, uh, global black and indigenous communities overseas. Um, and it's sort of building their identities in relation to them, but also in relation to other diaspora communities. So the way in which the New Zealand diaspora is very different to the US or the Australian. And I think these communities are talking about their differences online too. So kind of how to have, yeah, a phrase which can acknowledge us as being locally specific, yet globally uh, connected and moving. And also um, a little bit more outside of the binary of like home in, in a way, because we now have people who have made multiple um, movements, you know, uh, the diaspora community in Australia, a lot of them came through New Zealand, by, like those kinds of movements. How can we talk about the, these ourselves as global people, um, while still holding on to the kind of decolonial ethic that I think the Moana phrase um, and the people who have been pushing that work holds?
0: Would you mind sharing a little bit about what those two words mean then? Like, what, because I know there's a lot of baggage with, with, with both, both, right? Yeah. So... Um, and, and and keeping in mind that there are terms of convenience for this moment and, and your current engagement that, you know, so leaving room for change or growth in the future. But how did you settle on these words and what, are they, what do they say for you? Like, what do they yeah. mean to you?
1: I think, so Moana and the way that Moana has been used and advocated for since the 90s by people like, Mahina, Kolokesa Mahina especially, and others, though, I think has been really a, in a push against the term Pacific and the kind of colonial bag, baggage uh, that comes with that, um, and the notion of this passive kind of group of people. And I place that um, kind of academic, genealogically, in line with... Um, when and how offer's use of the word oceania. So that's kind of how I see it, that you sort of went through this this really amazing renaissance of this kind of decolonial imaginary in the seventies, eighties and nineties with Oceania. And then that was kind of pushed further by this next group of scholars trying to look at, okay, how can we have the characteristics of Oceania which sees us as full and multi-layered and not desperate islands separated by a vast sea but a sea of islands um, with using our own language and so that's kind of how I've always seen um, Moana and then I see that yeah within a decolonial kind of approach to that and I think and you know more recently there's been a lot of our um relatives out of micro and melanesia kind of saying well we don't have moana in our language it's not actually as all-encompassing as as it you might think and i agree with that and i hear that but i the reason why i've gone with moana and not pacific is because i don't think criticism makes it enough for us to not try and so i like at least that moana signals an attempt to do that decolonial work in this region and i would feel irresponsible in 2020 to be using a word like Pacific when we have had this um, thought done. And so I acknowledge that it's not a full stop. I acknowledge that it's not correct, that it's not the end goal, but that it's in a lineage of something. And so I want to be a part of that change rather than kind of picking the too hard basket and using Pacific, which always feels a bit safer. And then cosmopolitanism has a super long history super long, complicated history um, in sort of Greek, early Greek, Stoic philosophy um, and is often uh, quoted as being the translation for citizens of the world, so, which is then kind of misappropriated in ways um, of homogeneity and kind of blending us all into one thing. But it's kind of gone through quite a few transformations in quite a few different discipline areas over time and where I think I come in is the work around um, specifically Chinese diasporic and Indian diasporic people reclaiming that word as a politic to hold the ways in which we're different. So acknowledging that we have to um, meet the other person on the other side rather than put up these borders and these boundaries and move away from each other and Bonnie Honig in particular used the phrase "I'm um, holding the tensions and I've always really loved that idea because I think for someone like myself who is so specifically local yet I have so many um, influences all over the place within my body I hold the tensions of what it means to be a pacific person in 2020 and yet we also hold those tensions within our communities because we're so different. It is such a large area with so many different language groups and all that kind of thing. So I think it has sort of these two elements to it. One is it allows us to be multi-layered and complicated. And it also acknowledges the way in which we are a part of this global world. And so, yeah, it's helpful for my PhD and it'll be interesting to see if I use it beyond this point
0: yeah oh so interesting the the way you're using cosmopolitan right and then and how you point to people reclaiming the holding tensions within ourselves as well as uh difference right so instead of homogeneity a draw from the sapatistas right like a world with many worlds right where the we, we live with difference, right? Live with difference within ourselves. And if we live with difference within ourselves, then we see... I mean, that, in a sense, opens up that we can live with difference out with everyone else yeah. if we see that within ourselves. And, I, you know, it also reminds me, um, again, the hip-hop feminist Joan Morgan. She talks about, like, there's no dividing line in my body of where, you know... I stop being a woman and start being black or a hip-hop person, right? And so it, it reminds me of that, too. Like, there is no dividing lines. That That is the illusion, right, that um, creates that, that conflict. So I, I really love the way you shared that. And with Moana, also I was thinking, you know, Albert Wentz, uh, The New Oceania, where it's, like, part of that lineage as well. And the, like, we can't go back. We're not going back. But, but the back is always here. And how do we create new stuff out of that memory, right? Reconnecting with the memory that is attempted to be erased through colonial projects. Um, and imagining creating new stuff as we move forward. And I think that the critique that you mentioned that people make, which is a fair critique, right? Like Moana is not the word for everybody. and And that's important. Yet, why should pacific then be the neutral word, right? It almost re- reframes and recenters that white supremacist idea of, all right, that's going to be our neutrality then. And like, by that being neutral, it's almost like the discomfort of Moana allows us to kind of move out of the that false notion of neutrality, of saying colonial terms.
1: yeah. That's you know? kind of how I feel about the both of the words that I'm using and the way in which I'm using them together, is that it's not... I never would want to be an expert on anything. Like, I don't want to be, like, the more cosmopolitan person or whatever. But I think that the more we throw out there, the more we can disagree and find new things. I don't... There's something really uncomfortable that we're still defaulting back to what feels easy. Yeah. And I just... I'm just, I don't know how Pacific scholarship can move forward um, if we keep doing that. And like, let's not be afraid of the messy situations. You know, we, me and you always talk about this or the places where those intersections cross uncomfortably. Like that's actually where I think the work, the transformative work is to be done. And so I'm okay to kind of put my my neck on the line to get those conversations going. And I've just finished the um, my Talanoa for my thesis. And it's really interesting because no one has a problem with the term cosmopolitan. And these are specifically artists that I'm talking to. They don't have a problem with it. They don't necessarily see it as the thing, but they're happy for there to be at least another word that we're talking about. Even if it's the purpose of my use of moana cosmopolitan is to get to something else. So I think there's that sense that we would at least rather be moving than uh just like staying still but I, I know something else that we always talk about and i feel like this is the problem uh, with my thesis and it's just like really only the concern of academia is naming or putting words to things that are already happening because people don't care because they're living their lives they're doing these things they have these really multifaceted, um dynamic ways of being it's happening. It's been happening for a really long time. It's academia's problem that we haven't caught up. And the fact that we are so absent from the literature means that we have to do this, this work where we find words for experiences that we already know to be. So we're kind of already on the back foot um, in that sense. It sort of makes everything we do almost like a history project because these experiences already exist. They're just not written down.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's one of our... One of the things that we were gonna explore at the Australian Association of Pacific Studies before COVID canceled that um, until further notice um, was, and this is something that we keep running into generally in, in, in this field too, right? Like, yeah, there's people already doing it. And I think that's part of it too. Like when we ground our work in people, then it's, it's not just what we want, but it's also it has to face that that practical reality of what people are already doing on one end mm-hmm. and that that discomfort as well of like, we we can't just name it, what we're doing is, our, our naming is in response, right? Because if you just make it up and it has no grounding, then it has no foothold, right? It doesn't have any meaning, which is why there's this massive gap in academia of what people are already doing, you know? Um, I found that as well in my work, like People who are already doing the stuff that people in this space just haven't caught up to. Yeah. And the difference of like thinking about it and talking about it versus doing it and people who already just live it.
1: I just feel like that's the almost impossible situation that only a certain group of scholars find themselves in because we work, our work is the communities that we are a part of and we see that change happening and when you're kind of asked to prove it in an academic sense or where's the data, it's like, well, the data doesn't exist because there's so, the gap is so huge sometimes it almost seems impossible to capture the data now because the 50 years prior to build the argument that you're trying to make isn't there. And I think people are really sick of me saying this, but I'm just like, we don't exist in the literature. And I feel that means that our work becomes not necessarily the work that we want to do, but the work that we have to do to even make the points that we want to in the future.
0: Yeah. Oh it's um <laughs> the, the the struggle of uh, finding uh yeah, finding the words to encapsulate what already has been and what is, eh? You know, there's another point I wanted to just kind of tease out with you a little bit more because you mentioned mobility. What you're doing opens up potential, right, of of becoming more secure with our insecurities. Yeah. Because the mobility is, isn't a new thing, right? Exactly. The, and the way you're using Cosmopolitan isn't necessarily a new thing either. I mean, like, yes, there's new elements because we're in a different context. But I think about atia. I think about even my ancestors in Mesoamerica, like, this isn't a new thing, the mobility, right? And and living with difference and multi ethnic life that coexists simultaneously and not without conflict, but that nonetheless has existed before and and is still the case. Yeah. And I find that you know, because I, I guess I put myself in the camp of indigenous studies uh, a lot of the time, yet sometimes I'm like, well, maybe I'm not. <laughs> because the mo- the way I think about indigeneity is very different, I think, because I, I want to allow for mobility in that. And sometimes it becomes so fixed that I'm like, well, how did we ever come to be who we claim to be connected to, if not for a previous mobility, if that makes sense? Like, I mean, I think even just in my Papa, like, our cosmology is based off of sure an origin place but you go on the ground and that origin has a physical place in like three different locations um it also has a metaphysical space and if we want to go before that then you know that we came from the stars like how far back do we want to go and if we allow that then really sh- we shouldn't be limiting our mobility today um so i just wanted to see what your thoughts on that because I, I like the words that you use because it It speaks to what I see happening and the way I think about it as well.
1: Mm. That's what I have always found really interesting, is that the Pacific has always been a cosmopolitan global world. Like, it's so... It's there. It's present in in everything. I mean, I'm Samoan, and we love to think that we're the centre of the universe, because that's what Samoan means. But we know that we came from somewhere else, although that can be actually quite a controversial statement. um, I'll just... But it's okay, it you're, not the, you're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, that kind of, you know, even in the way that we now romanticize navigation of the Pacific, and there's kind of that big resurgence of that, the, the story of mobility for Moana peoples is so ingrained, it's so old. Like, it's older than old, you know what I mean? It's so present, and I think that's the problem now when we're coming into... Um, theorized things is that we have to prove that that once existed because the rupture of colonization and the way in which the nation-state has been constructed is so um, long-lasting and so it's this weird thing where I'm like uh, the mobility that I'm talking about specifically has been exacerbated by um, increase, increasing class privilege, increasing educational privilege so you know the fact that me and you were in Hilo in January on conferences uh, that kind of thing is increasing the way in which we travel and our ideas travel, but also the fact that I could never leave my home in Ranui and I would still have access to um, some amazing uh, scholar in Chicago or something, you know, as an example, just through my smartphone. So, um, we're a part of these worlds that these mobile worlds that have been exacerbated, I think, in the last maybe 10 to 15 years because of these things. But this is not new. So I think it there's a, that's the decolonial element as well, as it's us um, realizing that the homogenization of Pacific under the umbrella term of Pasifika or whatever in New Zealand, that sort of happened in the 80s and 90s, that was really important to the survival of our people at that time. And I think now we're at a point where we're realising, you know, within that kind of group, there's Polynesian domination, for example, or that we have our own issues with um, anti-blackness, or there are certain members, certain parts of the ocean that are completely left out. And so we're kind of having to now find our specificity again with that, um, looking at the mobility of the ocean itself, but also I think the more, the more ways that we're in touch with each other globally, and um, brings that to the floor, to the fore. So, you know, when I'm in Australia, the Pacific community is completely different because of their geographical location. To, and the, the same thing when you're in the States and you know, that's all tied to colonization and the different um, alliances that were formed during that time. And so we're finding something that has always been there. And so I think the more people start to talk about that, um, I don't know I don't feel like it's a controversial thing but I feel like the conversations we have to have to get there sometimes can be quite clumsy and a little bit uncomfortable because we're also having to confront the ways in which we have been separated and embedded in that is a lot of intergenerational trauma and a lot of things that we as you know happy Pacific people as we're often painted don't talk about and don't talk about in that kind of global way
0: mm. Oh man, we by embracing that messiness, that emerges that that potential remembering, um, but also navigating like you mentioned those those traumas and it it makes me think of um, there's a there's a project I've been working on with Ata, Siu um, Ulua uh, who was on in the past as well on the again playing around with the idea of RC of Islands and. And Haofa's, you know, call for Oceania, which we're now building up into Moana, and how that has meaning because of the colonial context that isolated uh, psychologically, you know, geographically, politically, economically, different groups of people. And that still reappears today, right? And I find that even in my work, like, uh, even across these national borders, like, I I could be talking about a particular thing such as like gava or whatever but it means something different in different communities because of those different layers of isolation and so if you have a reference point and only know that one reference point that that becomes the measure for the authenticity and so by embracing the messiness it does it, it can be controversial right like it it it, it can be it can reveal or it can cause those ruptures of of those moments of isolation or those kind of reference points of isolation that we sometimes use and i I, for me my own journey of identity was riddled with that like each potential growth had to do with me dealing with my point of reference that was that i had to be critical of Mm. you know
1: and i think it's that really particular struggle of most of us live within settler colonies that are not our indigenous homelands so we are coming up against um what that means for racialized bodies. And in New Zealand it means the lowest median income for a Pacific person, for a Pacific woman, it means the lowest income of all groups. Um and you know every other negative statistic you could ever think about. Um and so there is that going on and and it's really hard to then um get out of that to the point so that you're not re-weaponizing that on yourself or your own people um with this idea of that there even is an authentic way to be a thing, and which there never was. Um, and so I think it's just about remembering, remembering that and reassuring people with that, because, and I guess that's the other reason why I moved away from the term diaspora, because when I came into university, I was really shocked that the narrative of, um, that the assimilation narrative was still going, that, you know, culture was going to die out, you know, and this was within um, Pacific scholarship, that people were kind of thinking this way, that there's authenticity at one end and then, I guess, the cosmopolitan at the, at the other. Um, whereas I don't feel that way. I don't really feel the inner turmoil that I think that literature describes. I don't feel half and half or less than or anything. I feel um, like I have the ability to hold these multiple worlds all at one time. And I know we've talked about this too, I think that comfort makes people unsettled sometimes. Mm. And as a mum too, I look at my kids who are um, bilingual. They're fluent in both languages. They, they move out of all of the words, worlds they're a part of with more comfort than me. And so if anything, I kind of see it going backward. And so this, I guess this is what I'm talking about when I say I'm just putting words to things that I already see, because the literature just didn't have room for this mess. Or well, the tensions, these kind of multi-layered, um, multi-perspective
0: or um lives in it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so there's the lesson, right? <laughs> Embrace our contradictions, yeah. our, our complexity, because they're there. They're they're present, and keep. And part of the creation is those words that help us identify. I guess that's one of the positives that can emerge from naming, if it's in relation with community, is. Mm-hmm. Um, identifying it so we can remember um, what is in front of us, or yeah. like what we're already doing.
1: I think it's a, the basic practice of learning to tiroleva, like in real life. So realizing that there are other people on the end of that relationality and how you can care for those relationships. And I think when you learn how to tiroleva, you can hold. Their experience and your experience, without the need of having to
0: conflate them into one thing. Yeah. Oh, awesome. As you said that, it reminded me of embracing the messy reality of where we live. You know how we're connected to those places, and sometimes there's relational ties. Sometimes they're, I mean, they're all relational ties, but some of them are not good ones, <laughs> right? Sometimes we move through the settler colonial apparatus in in our in our movement. I guess, again, the critical hope that I have around this languaging of what we're embracing is seeing the relationality that we have and moving towards uh, becoming relatives. Like, and, and what does that mean? And of course, that is about accepting difference, those important differences and the messiness of our place and how we come to be in particular places. Um, and what that means in relation with tangata whenua here in Aotearoa or you know in different places with whoever the tangata whenua are there and the other uh, baggage that the modern world has uh, that we've inherited right.
1: I guess that the critical hope that I have is that we will be able to have the conversations for us to understand the relationality and that we can prioritize those relationships over the colonial binary that keeps us
0: apart thank you so much Uh, until the next time